you know, 35 days ago or so, we had Ash Wednesday service, and we've been in the season of Lent. Many of you may celebrate Lent in one way or the other. Uh, Many traditions do. It's a 40-day period, uh, which is usually used to fast. Uh, fasting either food or from some kind of comfort, some kind of thing. Uh, I know a lot of people do like no sugar, no caffeine, no technology, whatever it may be. Uh, Some of you may have been doing this. And so we've already been leading up to Holy Week. And so tonight, basically the whole purpose is to be able to take this season, we've already been in Lent, where Lent is coming to a close, Holy Week is about to happen, And so we wanna dive into God's word and see how we can be prepared best to be able to enter into Holy Week and to be able to worship, make sure our hearts are in the right place, and really be able to listen and get everything out of Holy Week that God intends for his people. And this week is the most important time for us because it remembers and celebrates God's completion of his salvific purpose and plan for all of us. That's what I want you guys to remember, to hold on to as you move into Holy Week, that we are celebrating this. We're gonna have multiple services next week, you know, on Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter, because it's God's completion of his salvific plan. It's important. There is no hope without the events of Holy Week. And we call it Paradox Wednesday, and I'm not really going to talk about the whole paradox part a lot, but really just to kind of give you a a glimpse into why we called it Paradox Wednesday is because Christianity is full of paradox, but it's okay that it's full of paradox. And Holy Week is the perfect example of that because to find salvation, we had to have death. To achieve victory, Christ suffered and died. That's a paradox. It doesn't make much sense. And even for us, as we enter into Holy Week to worship, we are entering into Holy Week to celebrate, to be glad, and to also grieve the fact that our sin required a gruesome and terrible death to pay the rightful cost. So there's a lot of paradox. We grieve our sin, we celebrate our redemption. Jesus dies so we can live, and victory comes through death. That's all a part of what Holy Week is. And so Holy Week has elements of grieving, has lament, and has joy and celebration. And so all these things are a part of what Holy Week is going to be. And it's what we're going to be walking through starting on Sunday with Palm Sunday. And so before we get into the passage tonight, I wanted to give you guys a quick breakdown of the historical Holy Week because not everyone may know what it is. You know, uh, if you come from a Catholic background, you may have a better idea. Uh, but for a lot of people and a lot of Protestant traditions, Holy Week really has kind of been pushed aside because of its Catholic connections. And so real quick, Palm Sunday is going to be this Sunday. That's the first day of Holy Week commemorating Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then we skip forward, and there's some things in the middle there, but traditionally, uh, the next thing is Monday, Thursday, which we have never done at Storehouse, but that is uh, celebrating the Last Supper. And that's when communion, the sacrament, was actually established and created. And so it's a cool thing to be able to keep in mind uh, as it comes up. One thing that I enjoy doing, this is just a side note, one thing that I enjoy doing with my family is I actually do communion with my kids at home, and I explain to them 
the importance and kind of just go through what we do on Sundays every single week, but it's that special time for me to lead my family in communion and, and make it a special time. Uh, Good Friday is on Friday, and it's the day of the crucifixion. Holy Saturday is the transition between crucifixion and the resurrection, and then Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't observe all these days, but we do recognize that they're significant. And I know for some, the Catholic connection can be a little awkward. It can be difficult to kind of see that. But the liturgical calendar, the Christian calendar, goes beyond denomination and tradition. It exists as a part of the church's life all the way back to its creation. I mean, these things that we're celebrating throughout next week are things that Jesus established. He did, he created. And there's truth to these celebrations in these days. Moments that are used to draw us near to the Father. So do not let man's failures dissuade you from a helpful guide toward grace. Let's enter into this time ready for God to actually do something powerful in our hearts. And so that's all I'm gonna ask you tonight, is just prepare yourself for God to do something. Open yourself up to the possibility that he has a purpose and a plan for your heart this coming week, for your family, for those around you. And so really the question that I want us to then keep in mind through the rest of today as we go through the passage in Mark is very simple, but I want you to keep asking yourself as we go through, how is your heart? Right now, how is your heart? Is it ready? Is it prepared for this coming week? Are you ready for God to sanctify you, to move in you, to change you? Is your heart in a place where you are going to be able to admit your failings, maybe see somewhere that you've been wrong, and be able to turn away from sin and walk toward Jesus? Is your heart ready? How is your heart? So tonight in Mark 8 and 9, that's the passage we'll be in, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the disciples' hearts. In the lead up to the real Holy Week, the first one, what were the disciples doing? Were their hearts ready? Were they prepared? And I'm going to kind of give a spoiler, uh, they didn't do so hot. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to see they failed in many ways. But there's some lessons we can pull from that. And we're gonna be able to see how they failed and maybe how we could help ourselves to make sure we don't fall into the same traps. And so we're gonna walk through Mark eight and nine and I'm gonna be uh, saying a lot of passages, I'm gonna be quoting a lot of scripture and we're gonna walk through the journey they took step by step as we get there. And I'm going to skip over a few things and cover specifically more about how their hearts were ready for what was about to occur with Jesus. And so to start us out, we're gonna be in chapter eight, verse 27. And all these things should be up there for you because like I said, I'm gonna be jumping. And so before we get to verse 27, Jesus is out and he's healing and he's teaching and he's preaching to the multitudes and he's just doing his ministry. The same thing he's been doing through his entire three-year ministry. When we get to verse 27, it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
So he has just spent a whole bunch of time teaching, doing miracles, just loving and caring for people, all kinds of people. And now it's just him and the disciples walking along and he just asks, who do people say that I am? Who did they just say that I am? And they kind of have a little talk and Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. And so this is a fantastic start. Immediately we see as they are on their journey to get to Holy Week, they see that he is the Christ. They admit that, they know that, and so this is really good. Immediately after this though, Jesus teaches that the Christ is going to be rejected and killed. In verses 31 and 32, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Right before this, right before Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, Peter also just said, you are the Christ. He says, you are the Christ, you are God. You're the savior that we've been waiting for. And then on the same walk, in the same conversation, he's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, you got this wrong. he immediately discounts what Jesus is trying to teach them because it goes against what Peter thought the Christ was supposed to be and do. Because Peter is thinking in terms of a political salvation. And this was exactly what the Jewish people thought the Christ was going to do. That Christ was gonna come in and he was going to save his people from oppression from a worldly oppression, from Rome specifically. And so we see this in all the teaching. If you go through all the gospels, you see this come up again and again and again. Even earlier in chapter eight, you see the Pharisees trying to set up Jesus because they are thinking in terms of a political salvation. Peter thinks that he is the Christ. He believes this, he said this, you are the Christ. And then he rebukes him saying, no, you're not going to die because you have to save us. You have to turn us into a superpower. You have to have us overthrow Rome and be greater than. See, Peter and the disciples and the Jewish people at the time thought he was going to be like the second Solomon, bring them up to the greatest time of their history. But Jesus said, that's not what I'm here for. That's why it says, and he said this plainly, because he knew that this is what they were thinking that it was a political salvation, and he said very plainly, I am going to die, which goes against everything they thought. And so they freak out, and they don't know what to do do with that. And so Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. In 8.33, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Once again, he's still speaking very plainly, saying you are thinking the way that that man thinks that I'm going to be a political Christ, but I'm not. I come to save you, not politically, but to save your hearts. Immediately after this, they continue on their way, and he teaches many still, serves many, and he teaches that salvation is in sacrifice, not in gain. And so Jesus is actually continuing what he's saying to the disciples, he continues to teach on this in many different ways. 
but he's basically teaching what you think the Christ is here for is not what I'm here for. You need to get this through your head. And in 8, 34 through 38, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They're okay with that part. He's the political Christ. Of course we will follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. At this point, the disciples are starting to scratch their head again. For what does a for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is Christ directly saying, what's the point of me turning Israel into a superpower if you're gonna lose your soul? The disciples are not wanting to hear this. They don't want to hear this part. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory with the Father with the holy angels. This is kind of a little jab at Peter for rebuking him. But he's teaching that I am not here to save you politically. I am not here to give you more. I am not here to save you by gaining I'm here to save through sacrifice. Not just me, but my disciples, my followers. Sacrifice is how salvation will happen, not through gain. He is very plainly teaching them that a political Christ is not a Christ of salvation. And then after this, they continue on their way and the transfiguration happens. Now this is where the Father directly speaks to Peter, James, and John. So the three main dudes, the Father speaks to them clearly from heaven. And he says in, nine, seven, in, in chapter nine, verse seven, this is all the Father says to them. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus has been pointing them to this truth that I'm not here as a political savior and they're just not getting it. They're not listening, they're rejecting it. He had to rebuke Peter and then the father speaks directly to Peter, James, and John and the only thing he says is just listen to my son. Just listen to him, he's telling you the truth. And yet we see immediately after that that they still do not get it. God gives the disciples every possible chance, all the evidence, all the plain teaching, and even a miracle to get them to pay attention to the truth right before them that Jesus is trying to teach them. And so immediately after this, in verse nine, Jesus reminds them that he will be killed. And as they were coming down from the mountain, right after this miracle occurs, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. Again, for the second time, he says, I will die. And God just told them, hey, listen to my son. They're literally walking away from it minutes afterward. And he says, I'm going to die because I'm not a political Christ. I'm going to die, but I will raise again. And they skip over that part and they think, you can't die. This is impossible. No, I'm not going to listen. So Christ continues and he 
heals more, loves more, works with many people. And we get into chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them. So once again, he pulls the disciples away from the multitude to be able to intentionally teach them. And some of the most plain language that we see across his whole ministry is in these chapters, where he teaches them the truth of who he is and how salvation is going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. This is the third time in the same journey as they're walking together. Third time he says that I'm going to die. And he says I'm going to have a resurrection. I will be raised. There's victory in what is going to happen. But the disciples miss it completely because all they can think about is what their hard hearts had already decided, that Christ was a political Christ who was going to establish an earthly kingdom that was gonna save them from oppression and raise his followers up to positions of power. That's what they were thinking about, and that's it. They could not grasp even the simple truths that he was telling them plainly, that salvation is not through gain, but through sacrifice. And there's also another interesting aspect here that is often overlooked. Because we know that Jesus is also man. God enters into human history, the Son, the eternal Son, as the man, Jesus Christ. So he's 100% God, but also 100% man. And in Hebrews, we see that he experiences all the things that we experience. He knows what we go through. He feels the emotions, the temptations. He knows what it's like to be human because he is human. This is the third time he has pulled aside the people he's closest to and said, I am going to die. He is seeking comfort from his friends as he tries to teach them. Do the disciples pick up on that at all though? No. They are afraid. They rebuke him. Jesus comes to them and he wants to teach them a truth theologically that the Christ is not political and he is coming as a man who is afraid of his death. Terrified. And we know he's terrified even though he's going to walk into it fully and he wants to do it because he loves us and wants to save us. He knows the purpose but he's scared and terrified and anxious because in Gethsemane he's going to sweat blood. We know he's anxious. Jesus is terrified of the death that awaits him. And he's seeking those he's closest to to just love on him. Because God is love. God is relational. He has relationship with these guys and he wants them to be able to be with him in this moment. Once again, Gethsemane is the perfect evidence where he says, just come and pray with me. Because he's terrified. But the disciples, their hearts are just not right. 
The question, how is your heart applied to them, would be that it's hard. Because one, they miss the theological truth that salvation comes through sacrifice, which means they're unable to learn. Unable to learn anything, even things that are put right in front of them. Jesus tries to tell them salvation is coming through sacrifice, death, and resurrection three times before this. And if we go even further back, actually, even at the beginning of eight and, and further, there's other times where he's hinting at it and he's putting it right, on, uh, right in front of them, and yet they continuously miss it. And it's not because it's not clear or spoken plainly, because it says twice that he speaks plainly. It's because their hearts were so hard that they were unable to learn. They were hardened to the truth because they didn't want to admit that they may be wrong, that what they thought was the way was not, that any truth outside of themselves was true. Are you open this next week to admitting that you may be wrong? Is your heart soft enough that God can come in and present a truth to you and you let it transform you, change you? I mean, if anything marks the Christian life, it's transformation. We are dead in our sin and we, may, we are made alive in Christ and our whole life is a journey of sanctification where we become more and more like Jesus. That means you must change. And if you go through your whole life thinking that, oh, I finally arrived, I'm not sinning anymore or I'm not doing anything against the will of the Father, then you're missing out on something beautiful, on transformation, regeneration, change. Change is not a bad thing, especially when it comes to sanctification. And if you are not finding yourself open to the idea that you may have something in your life you need to deal with, then I ask you, how is your heart? Is it like the disciples where you are unable to learn? And number two, the disciples' hearts were so hard they missed the chance to have compassion. They are unable to love. Because of their hard hearts, they missed on an opportunity to love on Jesus, to comfort him, to support him as he comes up to what needs to be done, and an opportunity to lean on one another. Because what happens when Christ is crucified, when he is put on trial? What do the disciples do? Do they lean into each other in community? They scatter. They don't do anything right. And yet Christ is giving them the opportunity. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. This is going to happen. This is your chance to love one another, to lean in on your relationship that we've established through this time that we've been together. And they miss it completely. Their hearts are so centered upon themselves that they cannot even notice the suffering of their friend and they cannot realize that they may need one another for what is coming. Their hearts were so hard that they were unable to love. 
And so I ask you, how is your heart? Love is vital to our lives. We are created to be relational, to be in community. We know this for a fact because the prime theology of God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relational love. God is relationship, God is love, and he wants that relationship with us, but he wants us to have relationship with each other as well. Do you really love God? Do you really love one another? This next week, as we get into Holy Week, is your heart soft enough that you're gonna be able to look around and maybe see the suffering of a brother or sister? Somebody at storehouse who needs somebody just to have compassion upon them. Maybe it's a family member who, who doesn't know the Lord at all and they just need someone to love them. Is your heart soft enough to realize that that's around you, that it's ever present? We need to love one another, not just in the church but out of the church. We need to love Is your heart ready to do that, to realize the opportunities as they come? You see, the disciples, they get that something's about to happen. They they get that. They gain the sense that there's a climax to the ministry, and that's why they're so afraid. They understand that something is about to happen, but their reaction, they did not draw closer to Jesus. They did not lean into his teachings, try to seek understanding or clarity. They did not comfort him for what is to come, even though he tells them. They do not even discuss amongst themselves, how are we gonna deal with this when he dies? They didn't do any of that. They look to their own self-interest, that's it. That's all that they do. In chapter 9, 33 and 34, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. They are still thinking in terms of political salvation, because they are thinking, we're getting to the end. There's something that's about to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. Our ministry is at a climax, which means he is going to establish Israel as the greatest kingdom on earth. And so what are they thinking? Which one of us is gonna be at the right hand, at his left? Who's gonna get the cushy position? Who's gonna be a prince? That's all they're thinking about, their own self-interest. And they know deep down that they're wrong. I mean, they have to. Jesus has been telling them over and over there that he's going to die, that salvation is through sacrifice, not through gain. So they know that they're wrong, which is why they keep silent. And so if anyone's a parent or has babysat anybody before, you know that if you catch a kid in something and you confront them about something that they were doing that they know they weren't supposed to do, what do they do? Do they engage in conversation? No, they, that's all they do right? They stay silent 
They withdraw because they know they don't have an argument. They know that they were wrong. The disciples know that they're wrong. They don't want to talk about their conversation with Jesus because they know it was a bad conversation to have. And yet, that is all that they care about. How are they personally going to gain from Jesus? They refuse to see the truth. They sought selfish gain even though they knew it was wrong. Their hearts were completely set upon themselves and they could not see past it. Jesus sat down and he called the 12 in verse 35 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus, one last ditch effort, is saying salvation is through sacrifice. I am coming to die, not to set you up, not to elevate myself and you. I am coming to die. And they do not understand Their hearts are hard, focused on themselves completely. They just want their reward, their due diligence for walking with Jesus over the past few years. We have been in Lent, in this season, preparing for Holy Week. We're entering into the climax of the season, of the calendar just as the disciples in this instance are. They know that they're coming to a climax, a time that should result for us in worship. Next week should be a celebration where we come joyously on Sunday and Good Friday service, and we are worshiping, and we are loving one another, and we are joyful. But are your hearts ready for that? Or is your heart unable to learn, unable to love as we enter into Holy Week? Just like the disciples. Maybe for Lent you read the book that we gave out, had fantastic lessons in it, and it was really good. Maybe you gave up sugar or caffeine or gave up whatever. And now all you can really think about is, even if you wouldn't necessarily say it, now it's time for my righteous reward. Now I'm gonna be more holy. Now I'm gonna be more Christian. Now God is gonna bless me in some way. In front of you has been the truth that we have pushed from the pulpit, that has been pushed throughout the life of Storehouse with one another and CGs. The truth that this is a time to draw closer to Jesus for the sake of Jesus alone. That's it. That truth has been in front of you. It's what we've been talking about. But have you actually recognized that? Have you learned more about God? Are you entering into next week ready to learn what God has to speak to you? Over this season of Lent, maybe in your your fasting, have you actually grown to love Jesus more? Have you found joy in the sacrifice, the fasting? Are you looking forward to next week 
Or is it just another thing that we're going to do? One thing I've heard from somebody was, I gave up Netflix. Now I'll be able to be more holy because I had more time for you know, spiritual disciplines and stuff like that. Yet I see in them that they really just want to get Netflix back next week. And they're not going to continue any of those things. Another person gave up caffeine. Now God is going to reward me to have a more peaceful life. You know, I'm not so hyped up all the time. And they talk about the good times that they had over Lent. And yet, really, they want more caffeine and just want coffee again more than they want a prayer life that is deep and meaningful. How is your heart? Are your eyes on Jesus and what he teaches you and what he's been teaching you and what he's going to teach you? Are you looking toward him as savior, as friend, as comforter, healer, as your source of joy in this life? Or are you focused on your own gain? Do you just wanna be the most religious person here? Or maybe you have righteous intentions, but really you just wanna defeat that sin that you feel like is holding you back. Next week is a week of celebration for our relationship with God. One that I hope will result in lots of happy tears and smiles. And I mean, I grew up Pentecostal, so jumping and raving the flags, but we don't do that. But there should be joy. Next week should be a time where you are just shaking with anticipation. But how is your heart? Is Easter going to come and really all you're expecting is some form of reward ceremony for your fasting and your Lent sacrifice? It's not a participation trophy. Next week is a time for us to love God more. And I pray that when we enter into next week that you are going to find that joy. But I ask you, and I want you to keep this in mind, how is your heart? Is it ready? Let's pray. Father, you are good and wonderful. Lord, you do amazing things to us and for us. I know for a fact that you have amazing things in store for your people over the coming weeks. And I know this because I know who you are, because you and I have relationship. Father, you want to have relationship with all of us. Not just a dead religion, but a relationship. And because of that, I know your character, and I know that you love unconditionally, uncontrollably, and passionately. Father, I can only return just an ounce of that. But Lord, I ask for myself and everyone here and everyone's storehouse especially that you just pour your love upon us. If we have a hard heart in any area, if we're unable to learn or unable to love you or others, soften our hearts. 
break us down so that we can honor and glorify you. Next week, we celebrate your salvific purpose within your people. Let that be something that not only wrecks us, but brings us to a place of such joy and celebration that we worship like we've never worshiped before. I ask that that begins tonight in all of our hearts. Bring us closer to you. How we love you so much, Father. You are good, you are holy. In your name, amen.